on the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry. I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Irokti, a yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, on Kestian Echo. Vientolum againom Griv, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't care what you believe, to be honest. If everyone believes I don't know. Hands up. I didn't do it. That's all I can say. Today on the Indo Daily, the countdown to the monk's verdict. Jerry the Monk Hutch, a prominent Irish criminal boss, is standing trial for the 2016 murder of David Byrne at the now infamous Regency shooting. But what do we know about the man standing in the dock who goes by the name The Monk? From the age of nine, he became involved in the criminal justice cycle. Uh, and he was caught stealing a bottle of lemonade. When I was 15, I was in prison. I was in prison with murderers, rapists. I mean, that that's not right. Hutch's gang has always had AK-47, didn't have to borrow them from anybody. They always had them in their arsenal because of his friendship with the provost through the years. There's probably 50 family members with the same name as Hutch, and if one of them gets into trouble, it lands on my door. Jerry Hutch, he said, I'm godfather of nothing. I'd retired. But literally, it was the sins and the capricious nature of his own family. And it was his family blood that dragged him back into the feud. I'm Fionn Sheen, and joining me on the Indo Daily is Paul Williams, special correspondent with the Irish Independent, and author of The Monk, The Life and Crimes of Ireland's Most Enigmatic Gang Boss, to profile Jerry Hutch and ask how one young boy could grow up to become one of Ireland's most talked about and most wanted crime lords. Paul, what do we know about Jerry Hutch's early life? Well, Jerry Hutch um, was very, very much typified the sort of generation of criminals who emerged in the 70s and the 80s. Um, he came from a very impoverished background from the north inner city. He lived in the Railway Street area. In uh, His family originally lived in tenements there, which were very overcrowded. Uh, money was very scarce. His father worked on the, the docks. From the age of nine, he became involved in the criminal justice cycle uh, and he was caught stealing a bottle of lemonade and he was brought before the district court. Um, and his journey into organised crime is very similar and typifies the kind of average story of many, many other criminals. I was involved in other crime as a kid, stealing and breaking into shops. 
There was, there was nothing around. I mean, forced up, best dressed. I had no choice. You had to get into crime to feed yourself. My mind, dress yourself. You know, they come up in impoverished backgrounds, socioeconomically deprived. Um, the brothers, or older brothers, like Eddie, was, he was very close to his brother Eddie and Patsy, who we've heard a lot about during the trial, who was uh, also was there. They were very much mentors of his and older brothers of his, and they were involved in crime long before him. So he, he followed basically in what was a, a community tradition in the area and a family tradition, which was petty crime. The same as the Duns and all these other families. Jerry Hutch would have grown up in a community and a society where they would have felt, and they were quite right in this, very isolated from the rest of the world because only down the road here uh, was O'Connell Street, the, the main state's main boulevard. And all these places out here were very deprived, run down, people living in, on top of each other in tenements on the edge of the, of the docklands. That had a major influence on his development as a human being because he always was very angry about that. I've been in his shadow for 30-odd years or more. Um, that actually was one of the main driving forces in his life, that he said, I'm, go I'm not going to be poor when I grow up. I'm going to rob my way out of the ghetto. And that's literally what he did. In the 1970s, there was a, there was a great movie... Uh, Jodie Foster was in it called Bugsy Malone and it was a bunch of ch child actors uh, One of your favourite movies from and I know <laughs> this you told us before we came on Mafia style The Monk's first gang was called the Bugsy Malone gang Tell mm. us about them Well he he was a young tearaway and he was involved with these other um, tearaways from the area some of them by the way who stayed with him all the way through and would be still his friends today and they were quite notorious for jumping into, running into shops, robbing shops. And they became almost sort of like organised. But they were so notorious that their their notoriety uh, developed and they, they arrived on the scene around the time that the Bugsy Malone's movie was a huge hit in the 70s. So some journalists, I think, from probably from this stable of ours, but somebody decided to say, these guys are like the Bugsy Malones. And they lived off that name, so they become known as the Bugsies. It can sound like it was a bit fun, but there was one time where he was interviewed outside one of the courts by a guy in RTE. And um, it was one of the few times that he ever did an interview. And he was like, there were young kids, 15 years of age, bragging about Robin. And he said, you know, I, I love the buzz of Robin jumping in. And I like to work in a bank, getting behind the till saying, give me the money, fill up the bag. You know, this kind of bravado, which is inevitable kids. It was while all of this was going on, um, other senior criminals, like the likes of Eamon Kelly, the infamous Eamon Kelly, who was ex-IRA and uh, official IRA, and one of the first generation of godfathers in, in Dublin, um, he took him under his wing because you could see this young fellow had talent because Hutch's older brothers uh, were working for Kelly. Kelly ran a big carpet business here in town, here in Talbot Street as well. and But that was just a front for small level of drug activity or protection rackets, armed robberies, renting out weapons and Kelly saw at a very early age in Gerard as they all call him locally um, a talent Throughout the 80s Jerry Hutch is now involved in, in very much grown up crimes tell us about some of the more serious incidents that he's involved in Well this week he celebrated his 60th birthday he's born the 12th of April 1963 and if he's listening happy birthday Gerard um, three days time four days time he's going to learn or three days time he's going to learn what his fate will be but he was implicated and involved in some of the first gang what we call gangland murders 
Uh, one of them was a guy called Danny McOwen, which Hutch was the main suspect for that. And that was a case whereby this guy, Danny McOwen, who was involved in the INLA and the IRA and various paramilitary, because remember, there's a very close, like we see with Jonathan Dowdall, there has always been a very close nexus between what we call organised crime and uh, terrorism. So this guy, McOwen, stepped across the line, uh, threatened members of the family, and he was killed, and Hutch was always nominated as the suspect for that. But before that, there was another incident where a, and a friend of his, who was also a member of Kelly's gang, another young guy, had robbed uh, with Hutch a, a bank. And t- this guy was from Crumlin. He hid the money, the cash from the robbery in Crumlin, and it was stolen by a couple of young lads. And Kelly went and threatened them and all of that. So in between the jigs and the reels, what happened was the young lad was murdered, who shot dead. This young lad of 15, 16 years of age was shot dead when gun shots were fired through the front door of the house one night. Hutch was arrested by the Gardaí. And I, I happened to have seen the file on that case because it was fascinating because they were talking about, they, the guards themselves, were fascinated by this fella. They said, we have never seen the likes of this guy before. This was only about 19 years of age, 18, 19 going on 20 and there was a report they did on him and they said since 1971 Hutch has 30 previous convictions for numerous cases of housebreaking larceny assault and obstructing police this is in the police report he has served a number of terms in imprisonment Gerard Hutch is full time involved in the organisation of major crime and is act- actively involved in the commission of these crimes it is stated that he has access to a wide range of weaponry and all that kind of stuff over the years, there have been many sightings of himself, Kelly, and other hardcore criminals together. Here's the peculiar line. Although of tender years, Gerard Hutch is much respected and feared by the criminal element on account of his previous exploits and violent disposition. He is full-time involved in the organisation of major crime. He stood out from the crowd with, in the eyes of the police, in the eyes of his community, in the eyes of the criminal fraternity. He had that X factor. In relation to... That murderer, he he does spend time in prison. What what impact do you think that had on him? He he would complain and moan about like all criminals do. They all moan and whinge about oh poor me. When I was fifteen, I was in prison. I was in prison with murderers, rapists, bank robbers, everything in a male prison. I mean that that's not right. It was like going to college for criminals. When he went into prison first, he was very, very young and he shouldn't have been in adult prison. And he complained about that and quite rightly so. Uh, but his brothers made sure that there were serious lags inside who minded him and protected him. He would always say that Mountjoy was his school because he couldn't read or write because he never went to school very much. And he learned how to read originally from reading comics while inside. Um, and basically, I think what it did to him was he learned at an early age, after so many jokes with the law and being put in his side, that he was never going to be put inside again. And it is testimony to him up until this particular day that we're speaking to each other, um, that he has never served a very long prison sentence. He's been associated with the biggest armed robberies in the history of the state, probably some of the biggest armed robberies in the British Isles. Um, uh, and he was never, ever caught. And I used to say about him, you know, he wasn't so much untouchable or that he was more uncatchable uh, for the police because he was very, very clever and meticulous. And that's what made him stand out from everybody else. And also he's the strong, quintessential strong, silent type, the brooding um, godfather who says very little. 
And we actually got a taste of that when we listened to, in court during his trial to the to the, the recordings of his 10-hour journey with Jonathan Dowdle. Tell us about his two biggest heists and why they were both targeted at security companies. The first one was 1987. Uh, I, I was remembered because I literally joined the Sunday World about a week later. So our career started at the same time. The first one was the what we call the Marino Mart robbery. If you want to hit five banks or six banks at the same time, you wait until the, the cash van collecting the money fills up and then you nick it. So they had somebody on the inside and what they did was put a, again, he pulled off a lot of big robberies but nothing of this scale before. He used the same template and the same concept. They were expecting to get about £100,000. They took over this security van, the Marino Mart, when it was doing his last delivery or collection of money from the Bank of Ireland. They took it to, ironically, St Vincent's GAA Club grounds at the same spot where the six-member hit team involved in the Regency went back to be collected and taken away. So himself and uh, five other guys uh, who are still his mates and and being part of his team all, all those through the years, they took the money, brought it back to the GAA grounds, emptied it up, brought it to a house and sat down and started counting. And I remember talking to a person who was there many years ago and they, uh, they counted the money all night and when they were finished they all sat around staring at this big pile of notes and there was something like £1.3 million pounds. now you just do the maths for what it's, that's worth a, today a and massive amount it was the biggest cash robbery and yeah. at, the, at the time the general Martin Cahill was very much on the go and Cahill like he had the record for the biggest robberies in the, he pulled off the biggest art one of the art, biggest art heists in the world he pulled off the O'Connor's jewellery robbery and he had robbed like he was left stumped by it saying my god who is this young fellow on the block and this was Jared Hutch with his own crew who were remained with him for the big jobs and that put him on the map and then he started buying property and he got into property from then on Tell us about Brinks Allied probably the the biggest of the jobs he's associated with That was in 1995 and it was perhaps one of the it, it was definitely one the, the biggest robbery at the time but also one of the most uh, meticulously planned and dramatic robberies we've ever seen. A gang of armed and masked men broke into the Brinks Allied Security Cash Holding Depot at Clonshock in North Dublin. This time, the loss was more than double that of Securicor's, £2.8 million in cash, was driven away across the backfields and never recovered. The level of planning that went into that is, was extraordinary. They had AK-47s on it as well, of course, because Hutch's gang has always had AK-47s, didn't have to borrow them from anybody. They always had them in their arsenal because of his friendship with the provost through the years. Um, that was planned very basically um, at the time. It was up in Clanshock, this cash-holding centre for Brink Satellite. And it was surrounded by CCTV cameras and a moat was around it and a big high steel fence. So what they did was they went in the middle of the night, or the, sorry, in the evening time when it got dark, and they had reconnoitered, they had a couple of jeeps, they went across, they had planned a route for themselves that they could drive in the darkness with reflector, you know, these reflectors you see on railway stations, stuff like that, and they got right up at the back of the Brink satellite. They knew exactly its Achilles heel, how they could get in. They had loosened... The, the, the wire fence on a premises next door. They just simply loosened them. They had a bridge built across this moat. They drove their jeeps in very quietly. And at the same time, they timed for the last of the, the cash vans to come back. And 
literally in, with military precision, they had it organised, so they smashed their way through the uh, weakness in the fence of the Brinks Allied and took, went in with AK-47s and took, oh, I can't remember the figures, but 3.4 million pounds, another huge robbery. And that was the one that really put Hutch on the map. And that's when we learned and started broadcasting to the world that his nickname was The Monk because he lived this frugal lifestyle that he didn't drink, he didn't into, uh, do drugs, he wasn't into excess, he wasn't a bully boy, he kept to himself. And I, I would say about Hutch in, in, in summary, somebody asked me to describe Hutch and I, I would be like a lot of other people, I, I know a lot about him, but I'd be very ambivalent about him because I, I see the good and the bad. But I would say the best way to describe him, Fiona, is that He's the least worst of any villains I've ever come across. He managed to escape prosecution through that latter period of the, the peak of his, his career. But the Criminal Assets Bureau did catch up with him. I wrote a story about him in the Sunday World at, uh, at that time. And he went to Veronica Gearn because he was really pissed off. And uh, he always maintained, he was very touchy about this, about being associated with drugs. We never said he was involved in drugs, but we said a lot of people around him were involved in drugs, and that's for sure. And um, he went to complain to Veronica, and he did an interview with her. And she, at the time, had been shot. She'd been shot in January 1995. And that was organised by John Trainer, we now know, and John Gilligan. And it was done in a way to try and blame Hutch, because she had written about Hutch availing of this famous tax amnesty that we had in the early 90s. Um, which really put the cat among the pigeons and put Hutch in the middle of the frame. So when Veronica was murdered, um, Jerry Hutch was the only criminal who went with his associates, a couple of associates, and he stood outside our old headquarters on, on Middle Abbey Street and queued, like all the other people, who, to go in and sign the Book of Condolences. At one o'clock exactly, work stopped as workers paid their respects to Veronica Guerin and Detective Garda McCabe. The saddest place was Independent House in Middle Abbey Street in Dublin. It was here in the newsroom that Veronica Guerin worked and it was to this building that she was travelling last Wednesday when she was shot dead on the Nace Duel carriageway. Hutch considered that an absolute step way too far. Um, so one of the ironic parts of that was that as a result of Veronica's murder, the Criminal Assets Bureau was established, which went after the ill-gotten gains of criminals. And ironically, again, apart from John Gilligan, the first major operation that was put on the on the books for the Criminal Assets Bureau was called Operation Alpha, and that was to investigate Jared Hutch, the monk, and all his associates. And as a result of that investigation, within about three years, Hutch agreed to pay them £1.2, £1.3 million pounds to pay off his taxes. Now, he agreed to do that because, and the cab knew at the time, and he knew at the time, that they were always leaving with a few quid in the pocket. As he said himself to Paul Reynolds afterwards, they couldn't leave me in me nude. I had to have a few quid left over. Not paying your tax is a crime. They've probably taxed me on that type of a crime. But they didn't, they didn't take money off me from security van robberies and say, we want their tax out of that. And he had, at that stage, invested his money very, very wisely in property. He was one of the first property developers in the north inner city. Like, for example, him and it was principally himself and Matty Kelly, who was Eamon Kelly's brother. They built Buckingham buildings, which we heard during the trial was the launch pad for the attack on the Regency. And they were the first people. And then Georgie Mitchell, the Penguin, was involved in that. They were the first people to have enough faith to invest their gain, their ill-gotten gains, in the local community and build property before property developers were on the map. Can you take us forward then to what has now become known as the Kinnan hutch feud? And if you can even call it a feud because it came, became so one-sided. 
the inciting incident for all of that was the murder of Gary Hutch. Tell us about that. James Quinn from Dublin was on trial for the murder of 34-year-old Gary Hutch, who was chased by a gunman around a swimming pool in a residential complex in Marbella in September 2015 and shot 15 times. You have to go back a year before that. Gary Hutch was uh, murdered in in Marbella in 2015, which was, again, an extraordinary event because of who he was. He was gangland royalty. They were one big gang. All of the people on the Hutch side were involved with the Kinahan side uh, and the Byrne side because all these, their familial links all come back to the inner city. Inevitably, with bunches of criminals, they always fall out. In 2009, Gary Hutch was part of a gang which robbed over 7 million in tiger kidnapping which was very much from the template book of Gerard Hutch. Now, Hutch himself wasn't necessarily involved, but he was certainly an advisor in the background. And Daniel Kinahan uh, took some of that money and invested it for Gary. Bring it on a number of years to start falling out amongst each other, which criminals inevitably do. Gary Hutch was a very volatile, nasty little thug as well. And he was involved very heavily in the drug trade. And... So Gerard Hutch, his uncle, had always eschewed that and stayed away from it. And at this stage, he was well retired and moved over to Lanzarote, spending most of his time there. He basically pulled a fast one himself and a number of others. Now, it was said in the Special Criminal Court by Donathan Dowdell that Patrick Hutch Jr., Patsy Jr., um, his brother, he's the son of Patsy Sr., um, that they were involved in an attempt to kill Daniel Kinahan in August of 2014. That failed... And it failed miserably. Uh, they shot a, a, a totally innocent man instead. As a result of that, they went to the edge of war. Gerard Hutch was called in by, they said they would only deal with him, da- Daniel and his father would only deal with Jerry Hutch because he was the man. And they all knew each other. And so they sat down and they did a deal. Now the deal was that was money paid over, that Ger- Gar- Gary Hutch would, uh, was to get away from everybody and he was going to be spared his life. At the same time, part of the deal was that Patrick Jr. was shot in the legs uh, by Daniel Kinnan as a punishment for being involved in, the, in that attempt. That was it. It went to re- it was rested. And all the associates and people around Jared Hutch said, as far as he was concerned, that was the deal was done and it was sacrosanct. You don't break this deal. Bring it on, they go and murder him a year later. Uh, at the same time, on that day, they also sent a hit team to murder Patsy Hutch, who was collecting his grandchildren from a, shot, from a school in Glasnevin. Then, on New Year's Eve, they sent two guys, Cumberton and Slater were their names. They're both doing time for life for, for some of the murders after the few, when the few kicked off. They were sent to kill him, which was a, considered to be an absolute no-no. This was completely unprecedented in the history of organised crime in Ireland. Hutch, being the cute, clever, street-cunning uh, character that he is, sensed the trouble and uh, got out with his wife before these guys could shoot him when they went to get the guns. When he came back, then there was talk about peace and all of that. Gerard Hutch at this stage, as he said to somebody the night after his brother was murdered, I'm godfather of nothing, I'd retired. But literally, it was the sins and the capricious nature of his own family. And it was his family blood that dragged him back into the feud. Gerard Hutch, just for anyone who wants to know of him. He was never involved in gratuitous violence. He was never one of these guys who went looking for trouble. He was always, as we heard in those tapes that were played from the surveillance tapes, he was always a guy who who lamented the old value system or the old ethos of organised crime 
had been swallowed up by the new generation of thugs who just were mad on their out of their heads on coke, selling coke and just shoot anyone getting their way. You know, and his nephews were part of that new generation, but it was them who dragged him into the middle of all of this. I mean, nephews, there's, there's probably 50 guys out there or 50 family members with the same name as Hutch, and if one of them gets into trouble, whether he's a relative or a friend, it lands on my door. That brings us right up to February the 5th, 2016, which is the day of the now infamous attack in the Regency Hotel uh, in Dublin. On the next episode of the Indo Daily, we'll be talking to Robin Schiller, who was there on that day, uh, about events as they unfolded. One of them let off a shot, people running out, screaming, children hiding behind walls. It was just absolute chaos. My thanks to Paul Williams for joining me today. I'm Fiona Jean, and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced and researched by Gareth Mulhall, recorded by Niall McMonagall with sound by Gavin Hennessy. Archive clips from RTE, ITV, Virgin Media and Independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.